this podcast deals with true crime. I will be speaking frankly and openly about crimes such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. What do you fear? I mean really fear. Phobias are part of everyone's lives. That seemingly irrational fear of certain things. For me, it's arachnophobia. I am terrified of spiders. For other people, they may suffer from chlorophobia, fear of clowns. Those jolly jesters of the circus can be terrifying for certain people. And I'm sure the character of Pennywise in Stephen King's classic It does not help. However, there is a very real reason to fear clowns. Because there was one serial killer who hid behind face paint and a shiny red nose as he killed at least 33 men and boys in the 1970s. Tonight, on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the case of John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown. Gacy Jr. was born in Chicago, Illinois on March 17, 1942, the second of three children and only son born to John Stanley Gacy, an auto repair machinist and World War I veteran, and his wife, Marion Elaine, a homemaker. Gacy was of Polish and Danish ancestry. His paternal grandparents had immigrated to the United States from Poland. As a child, Gacy was overweight and not athletic. He was close to his two sisters and mother, but endured a difficult relationship with his father, an alcoholic who was physically abusive to his wife and children. Throughout his childhood, Gacy strove to make his stern father proud of him, but seldom received that approval. This friction was constant throughout his childhood and adolescence. One of Gacy's earliest childhood memories was of his father beating him with a leather belt at the age of four for accidentally disarranging car engine components that his father had assembled. On another occasion, his father struck him across the head with a broomstick, rendering him unconscious. His father regularly belittled him and often compared him unfavorably with his sisters, disdainfully accusing him of being, quote, dumb and stupid. Gacy, while regularly commenting that he was, quote, never good enough in his father's eyes, 
always vehemently denied ever hating his father in interviews after his arrest. When he was six years old, Gacy stole a toy truck from a neighborhood store. His mother made him walk back to the store, return the toy, and apologize to the owners. His mother told his father, who beat Gacy with a belt as punishment. After this incident, Gacy's mother attempted to shield her son from his father's verbal and physical abuse, yet this only succeeded in Gacy earning accusations that he was a, quote, sissy, and a mama's boy who would, quote, probably grow up a queer. In 1949, Gacy's father was informed that his son and another boy had been caught sexually fondling a young girl. Gacy's father whipped him with a razor strap as punishment. That same year, Gacy himself was molested by a family friend, a contractor who would take Gacy for rides in his truck, then fondle him. Gacy never told his father about these incidents, afraid his father would blame him. Because of a heart condition, Gacy was ordered to avoid all sports at school. An average student with few friends, he was an occasional target for bullies by neighborhood children and classmates. He was known to assist the school truancy officer and volunteer to run errands for teachers and neighbors. During the fourth grade, Gacy began to experience blackouts. He was occasionally hospitalized because of these seizures and also in 1957 for a burst appendix. Gacy later estimated that he spent almost a year in the hospital for these episodes, between the ages of 14 and 18, and attributed the decline in his grades to his time out of school. His father suspected the episodes were an episode to gain sympathy and attention. He openly accused his son of faking the condition as the boy lay in a hospital bed. Although his mother's Sisters and few close friends themselves never doubted his illness. Gacy's medical condition was never conclusively diagnosed. One of Gacy's friends at high school recalled several instances in which Gacy Sr. ridiculed or beat his son without provocation. On one occasion in 1957, the same friend witnessed an incident at Gacy's household in which Gacy's father began shouting at his son for no reason, then began hitting him. Gacy's mother attempted to intervene. The friend recalled that Gacy simply, quote, put up his hands to defend himself, adding that he never struck his father back during these physical altercations. In 1960, at the age of 18, Gacy became involved in politics, working as an assistant precinct captain for the Democratic Party candidate in his neighborhood. This decision earned more criticism from his father, who accused his son of being a, quote, patsy. Gacy later speculated the decision may have been an attempt to seek acceptance from others that he never received from his father. The same year Gacy became a Democratic Party candidate, his father brought him a car, with the title of the vehicle being in his father's name until Gacy had completed the monthly repayments. These repayments took several years to complete, and his father would confiscate the keys to the vehicle if Gacy did not do as his father said. On one occasion in 1962, Gacy brought an extra set of keys after his father confiscated the original set. In response, his father removed the distributor cap from the vehicle, withholding the components for three days. Gacy recalled that the result of this incident, he felt, quote, totally sick and drained. When his father replaced the distributor cap, Gacy left the family home and drove to Las Vegas, Nevada, 
where he found work with an ambulance service before he was transferred to work as an attendant at the Palm Mortuary. He worked in this role for three months before returning to Chicago. In his role as a mortuary attendant, Casey slept in a cot behind the embalming room. In this role, he observed morticians embalming dead bodies and later confessed that on one evening while alone, he had clambered into the coffin of a deceased teenaged male, embracing and caressing the body before experiencing a sense of shock. The sense of shock prompted Gacy to call his mother the next day and ask whether his father would allow him to return home. His father agreed, and the same day Gacy drove back to live with his family in Chicago. Upon his return, despite the fact that he had failed to graduate from high school, Gacy successfully enrolled in the Northwestern Business College, from which he graduated in 1963. Gacy subsequently took management trainee position with the Nunbush Shoe Company. In 1964, the shoe company transferred Gacy to Springfield to work as a salesman. He was eventually promoted to manager of the department. In March of that year, he became engaged to Marilyn Myers, a co-worker in the department he managed. After a nine-month courtship, the couple married in September 1964. Marilyn's father subsequently purchased three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa, and Gacy and his wife moved to Waterloo so he could manage the restaurants with the understanding that they would move into Marilyn's parents' home, which was vacated for the couple. During his courtship with Marilyn, Gacy joined the local JCs and became a tireless worker for the organization, being named key man for the organization in April 1964. The same year, Gacy had his second homosexual experience. According to Gacy, he acquiesced to this incident after one of his colleagues in Springfield JCs plied him with drinks and invited him to spend the evening upon his sofa. The colleague then performed oral sex upon him while he was drunk. By 1965, Gacy had risen to the position of vice president of the Springfield Jaycees. The same year, he was named the third most outstanding J.C. within the state of Illinois. In 1966, Gacy began to manage the three KFC restaurants in Waterloo that his father-in-law had purchased. The offer was lucrative. Gacy would receive $15,000 per year the equivalent to $115,274 as of 2018, plus a share of profits earned via the restaurants. Gacy accepted the offer and relocated to Waterloo with his wife later that year, following his obligatory completion of a managerial course. In Waterloo, Gacy joined the local chapter of the JCs, regularly offering extended hours to the organization in addition to the 12 and 14 hour days he worked managing the three restaurants. 
Although considered ambitious and something of a braggart by his colleagues in the JCs, he was highly regarded as a worker on several fundraising projects. In 1967, he was named Outstanding Vice President of the Waterloo JCs. At JC meetings, Gacy would often provide fried chicken to his colleagues and insisted upon being given the nickname Colonel. The same year, Gacy served on the board of directors for the Waterloo JCs. Gacy's wife gave birth to two children. A son named Michael was born in February of 1966, followed by a daughter named Christine in March of 1967. Gacy himself later described this period of his life as, quote, perfect, adding that he finally earned the long-sought approval of his father. On one occasion in July 1966, Gacy's parents paid a visit to Iowa, during which Gacy Sr. apologized privately to his son for the physical and mental abuse he had inflicted on him throughout his childhood, before proudly informing him, quote, son, I was wrong about you, unquote. However, there was a seedier side of J.C.'s life in Waterloo, one that involved wife-swapping, prostitution, pornography, and drug use. Gacy was deeply involved in many of these activities and regularly cheated on his wife with local prostitutes. He is also known to have opened a, quote, club in his basement where he allowed his employees to drink alcohol and play pool. Although Gacy employed teenagers of both sexes at his restaurant, he socialized only with his young male employees. Many were given alcohol before Gacy made sexual advances towards them, which, if rebuffed, he would claim were jokes or a test of morals. In August of 1967, Gacy committed his first known sexual assault upon a teenage boy. The victim was a 15-year-old named Donald Voorhees, the son of a fellow J.C., Gacy lured Voorhees to his house with the promise of showing him pornographic films. Gacy plied Voorhees with alcohol and persuaded the youth to perform oral sex upon him. Over the following months, several other youths were sexually abused in a similar manner, including one whom Gacy encouraged to have sex with his own wife before blackmailing the youth into performing oral sex upon him. Gacy tricked several teenagers into believing he was commissioned with conducting homosexual experiments in the interest of, quote, scientific research, for which each were paid up to $50. In March 1968, Voorhees reported to his father that Gacy had sexually assaulted him. Voorhees Sr. immediately informed the police and Gacy was arrested and subsequently charged with oral sodomy in relation to Voorhees and the attempted assault of a 16-year-old named Edward Lynch. Gacy vehemently denied the charges and demanded to take a polygraph test. This request was granted, although the results indicated Gacy was nervous when he denied any wrongdoing in relation to either Voorhees or Lynch. Gacy publicly denied any wrongdoing and insisted the charges against him were politically motivated. Voorhees Sr. had opposed Gacy's nomination for appointment as president of the Iowa JCs. Several fellow JCs found Gacy's story credible and rallied to his support. However, on May 10, 1968, Gacy was indicted on the sodomy charge. On August 30, 1968, Gacy persuaded one of his employees, an 18-year-old named Russell Schroeder, to physically assault Voorhees in an effort to discourage the boy from testifying against him at the upcoming trial. Schroeder agreed to lure Voorhees into a secluded spot 
and spray mace in his face and beat him. Gacy promised to pay Schroeder $300 if he followed through on the plot. In early September, Schroeder lured Voorhees into an isolated county park, sprayed mace supplied by Gacy into the youth's eyes, then beat him, all the while shouting that he was not to testify against Gacy at his upcoming trial. Voorhees managed to escape and immediately reported the assault to the police, identifying Schroeder as his attacker. Schroeder was arrested the following day. Despite initially denying any involvement, he soon confessed to having assaulted Voorhees, indicating that he had done so at Gacy's request. Gacy was arrested and additionally charged in relation to hiring Schroeder to assault and intimidate Voorhees. On September 12th, Gacy was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation at the Psychiatric Hospital of the State University of Iowa. Two doctors had examined Gacy over a period of 17 days before concluding that he had antisocial personality disorder, a disorder which incorporates constructs such as sociopathy and psychopathy, was unlikely to benefit from any therapy or medical treatment, and that his behavior pattern was likely to bring him into repeat conflict with society. The doctors also concluded he was mentally competent to stand trial. Upon advice from his attorney, Gacy entered a plea of guilty to one count of sodomy in relation to the charges filed against him by Donald Voorhees. He pleaded not guilty to the other charges lodged against him by the other youths at a formal arraignment held on November 7, 1968. Before the judge, Gacy contended that he and Voorhees had indeed engaged in sexual relations, yet he insisted Voorhees had offered his sexual services to him and that he had acted out of curiosity. His story was not believed. Despite his lawyer's recommendations for probation, Gacy was convicted of sodomy on December 3, 1968, and sentenced to 10 years at the Anamosa State Penitentiary. On the day Gacy was convicted and sentenced, his wife petitioned for divorce, requesting possession of the couple's home, property, sole custody of their two children, and subsequent alimony payments. The court ruled in her favor, and the divorce was finalized on September 18, 1969. Gacy never saw his first wife or children again. During his incarceration at the Anamosa State Penitentiary, Gacy rapidly acquired a reputation as a model prisoner. Within months of his arrival, he had risen to position of head cook. He also joined the inmates' J.C. chapter and increased their membership figure from 50 to 650 in the span of fewer than 18 months. He is also known to have both secured an increase in the inmates' daily pay in the prison mess hall and to have supervised several projects to improve conditions for inmates at the prison. On one occasion, Gacy oversaw the installation of a miniature golf course in the prison's rec yard. 
In June 1969, Gacy first appealed to the State Board of Iowa for parole for early release. This application was denied. In preparation for a second scheduled parole hearing in May 1970, Gacy completed 16 high school courses, for which he obtained his diploma in November of 1969. On Christmas Day 1969, Gacy's father died from cirrhosis of the liver. Gacy was not told that his father had died until two days after his death. When he heard the news, Gacy was said to have collapsed to the floor, sobbing uncontrollably, and had to be supported by prison staff. Gacy requested supervised, compassionate leave from prison to attend his father's funeral in Chicago, but his request was denied. Gacy was granted parole with 12 months probation on June 18, 1970, after serving 18 months of his 10-year sentence. Two of the conditions of his probation was that Gacy would relocate to Chicago to live with his mother and that he was to observe a 10 p.m. curfew with the Iowa Board of Parole receiving regular updates as to his progress. Upon his release, Gacy told a friend and fellow J.C. named Clarence Lane, who picked him up from the prison upon release and had remained steadfast in his belief of Gacy's innocence, that he would, quote, never go back to jail and that he intended to re-establish himself in Waterloo. However, within 24 hours of his release, Gacy relocated to Chicago to live with his mother. He arrived in Chicago on June 19th and shortly thereafter obtained a job as a short order cook in a restaurant. On February 12, 1971, Gacy was charged with sexually assaulting a teenage boy. The youth claimed that Gacy had lured him into his car at Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal and had driven him to his home, where he had attempted to force the youth into sex. This complaint was subsequently dismissed when the youth failed to appear in court. The Iowa Board of Parole did not learn of this incident, which violated the conditions of his parole, and eight months later, in October of 1971, Gacy's parole ended. The following month, records of Gacy's previous criminal convictions in Iowa were subsequently sealed. With financial assistance from his mother, Gacy bought a house in Norwood Park Township, an unincorporated area of Cook County. The address, 8213 West Somerdale Avenue, is where he resided until his arrest in December 1978, and where all his known murders were committed. In August of 1971, shortly after Gacy and his mother moved into the house, he became engaged to Carol Hoff, a divorcee with two young daughters. Hoff, whom he had briefly dated in high school, had been a friend of his younger sister. His fiancée moved into the home soon after the couple announced their engagement. Gacy's mother subsequently moved out of the house shortly before his wedding, which was held on July 1, 1972. One week before Gacy's wedding, on June 22, he was arrested and charged with aggravated battery and reckless conduct. The arrest was in response to a complaint filed by a youth named Jackie D., who informed police that Gacy, impersonating a police officer, had flashed a sheriff's badge, lured him into his car, and forced him to perform oral sex. These charges were later dropped after the complainant attempted to blackmail Gacy into paying money in exchange for dropping the charges. Following Gacy's marriage to Carol Hoff, his new wife and stepdaughters moved into the Somerdale Avenue house. 
Gacy had quit his job as a cook and started his own construction company, PDM Contractors. PDM being the initials for painting, decorating, and maintenance. The business initially undertook minor repair work, such as sign writing, pouring concrete, and redecorating, but later expanded to include projects such as interior design, remodeling, installation, assembly, and landscaping. By 1978, the gross of PDM's annual turnover was over $200,000. In 1973, Gacy and a teenage employee of PDM contractors traveled to Florida to view property Gacy had purchased. On the first night in Florida, Gacy raped the youth in their hotel room. As a result, this youth refused to stay in the same hotel room as Gacy and instead slept on the beach. Upon returning to Chicago, this employee drove to Gacy's house as he was in the yard and beat him. Gacy's mother-in-law stopped the youth from further attacking Gacy and he drove away. Gacy explained to his wife that the attack had happened because he had refused to pay the youth for poor quality work. His neighbors in Norwood Park considered Gacy gregarious and helpful. He was active in the local community and hosted annual summer parties beginning in 1974. He also became active in Democratic Party politics, initially offering the labor services of his PDM employees free of charge. Gacy was rewarded for his community service by being appointed to serve upon the Norwood Park Township Street Lighting Committee. He subsequently earned the title of precinct captain. In 1975, Gacy was appointed director of Chicago's annual Polish Constitution Day Parade. He supervised the annual event from 1975 until 1978. Through his work with the parade, Gacy met and was photographed with First Lady Rosalind Carter on May 6, 1978. Through his membership in a local moose club, Gacy became aware of a Jolly Joker Clown Club whose members would regularly perform at fundraising events and parades in addition to voluntarily entertaining hospitalized children. By late 1975, Gacy had joined the Jolly Jokers and created his own performance characters, Pogo the Clown and Patches the Clown. Gacy designed his own costumes and taught himself how to apply clown makeup. Although some professional clowns noted the sharp corners Gacy painted at the edges of his mouth are contrary to the rounded borders that professional clowns normally employ so as not to scare children. Gacy is known to have performed as pogo or patches at numerous local parties, Democratic Party functions, charitable events, and at children's hospitals. He is also known to have arrived dressed in his clown garb at a favorite drinking venue named the Good Luck Lounge on several occasions with the explanation he had performed at a charitable event and was stopping for a social drink before heading home. By 1975, Gacy had told his wife that he was bisexual. After the couple had sex on Mother's Day that year, he informed her this would be, quote, the last time they would ever have sex. He began spending most of his evenings away from home only to return in the early hours of the morning with the excuse that he had been working late. His wife observed Gacy bringing teenage boys into his garage and also found gay pornography inside the house. They divorced by mutual consent in March of 1976.
January 2, 1972, Gacy picked up 16-year-old Timothy Jack McCoy from Chicago's Greyhound bus terminal. Gacy took McCoy, who was traveling from Michigan to Omaha, on a sightseeing tour of Chicago, and then drove him to his home with the promise that he could spend the night and be driven back to the station in time to catch his bus. According to Gacy's later account of the murder, he awoke the following morning to find McCoy standing in his bedroom doorway with a kitchen knife. Gacy leaped from his bed and McCoy raised both arms in a gesture of surrender, tilting the knife upwards and accidentally cutting Gacy's forearm. Gacy had a scar on his arm to support this account. He then twisted the knife from McCoy's wrist, banged his head against the bedroom wall, kicked him against the wardrobe, and walked towards him. McCoy then kicked him in the stomach, and Gacy grabbed the youth, wrestled him to the floor, then stabbed him repeatedly in the chest as he straddled him with his body. Gacy claimed he then went to the kitchen and saw an open carton of eggs and a slab of unsliced bacon on the kitchen table. McCoy had also set the table for two. He had walked into Gacy's room to wake him while absentmindedly carrying the kitchen knife in his hand. Gacy subsequently buried McCoy in his crawl space and later covered the used grave with a layer of concrete. In an interview after his arrest, Gacy stated that immediately after the killing, he felt, quote, totally drained, yet noted that he had experienced a mind-numbing orgasm as he killed the youth. He added, quote, that's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill, unquote. Gacy later stated that the second time that he committed murder was around January 1974. The victim is believed to have been an unidentified teenager youth with medium brown hair, estimated to be aged between 14 and 18, whom Gacy strangled before stowing the youth's body in his closet prior to burial. Gacy later stated that fluid leaked out of the youth's mouth and nose as he was stored in the closet, staining his carpet. As a result of this experience, Gacy later stated that he regularly stuffed cloth rags or the victim's own underwear into their mouths to prevent a reoccurrence of this incident. This particular unidentified victim was buried about 15 feet from the barbecue pit in Gacy's backyard. By 1975, Gacy's business was expanding rapidly. By his own later admission, he had begun working 12- and 16-hour days to fulfill agreed commitments upon an increasing number of contracts. Gacy freely admitted that in 1975 was also the year in which he began to increase the frequency of his excursions for sex with young males. He would often refer to these jaunts as his, quote, cruising. Much of the labor workforce of PDM contractors consisted of high school students and young men. One of these youths was a 15-year-old named Anthony Antonucci, whom Gacy had hired in May of 1975. Gacy arrived at the youth's home while the youth was alone, having injured his foot at work the day prior. Gacy plied the youth with alcohol, wrestled him to the floor, and cuffed Antonucci's hands behind his back. The cuff upon Antonucci's right wrist was loose. Antonucci freed his arm from the handcuff after Gacy left the room. When Gacy returned, Antonucci, a member of his high school wrestling team, pounced upon him. The youth wrestled Gacy to the floor, obtained possession of the handcuff key, and cuffed Gacy's hands behind his back. Gacy screamed threats, then calmed down and promised to leave if Antonucci removed the handcuffs. The youth agreed, and Gacy left the house. 
Antonucci later recalled Gacy had told him as he laid on the floor, quote, not only are you the only one who got out of the cuffs, you got them on me, unquote. One week after the attempted assault on Antonucci, on July 29, 1975, another one of Gacy's employees, 17-year-old John Butkovich, disappeared. The day before his disappearance, Butkovich had threatened Gacy over two weeks' outstanding back pay. Gacy later admitted to luring Butkovich to his home while his wife and stepchildren were visiting his sister in Arkansas, ostensibly to settle the issue of Butkovich's overdue wages. Gacy conned the youth into allowing his wrist to be handcuffed behind his back, at which point Gacy strangled him to death and buried his body under a concrete floor of his garage. Gacy later admitted to having, quote, sat on the kid's chest for a while before killing him. Butkovich's Dodge sedan was found abandoned in a parking lot with the used wallet inside and the key still in the ignition. Butkovich's father called Gacy, who claimed he was happy to help search for the youth, but was sorry Butkovich had, quote, run away. Gacy was questioned about Butkovich's disappearance and admitted that the youth and two friends had arrived at his apartment demanding Butkovich's overdue pay, but claimed all three youths had left after a compromise had been reached. Over the following three years, Butkovich's parents called the police more than 100 times, urging them to investigate Gacy further. Deceiving youths into donning handcuffs became Gacy's typical modus operandi. In subduing his victims, after plying a youth with drink, drugs, or generally gaining his trust, Gacy would produce a pair of handcuffs, occasionally as part of a clowning routine, which he would persuade his intended victims into donning. With his victims manacled and unable to free himself, Gacy would make a statement to the effect of, quote, the trick is you have to have the key, unquote, before proceeding to rape and torture his captive. He would finish with, quote, the rope trick, placing a rope over the victim's neck and tying a makeshift tourniquet until the victim was strangled to death. Following a heated argument regarding her failure to balance a PDM contractor's checkbook correctly, on October 1975, Carol Gacy asked her husband for a divorce. Gacy agreed to his wife's request, although by mutual consent. Carol continued to live at 8213 West Somerdale until February of 1976, when she and her daughters moved into their own apartment. One month later, on March 2nd, the Gacy's divorce decree upon the false grounds of Gacy's infidelity with women was finalized. Although Gacy remained gregarious and civic-minded, several neighbors became aware of his erratic changes in his behavior after his divorce in March of 1976 and subsequent arrest in December of 1978. This behavior included hearing his car arrive and depart in the early hours of the morning, noting lights switching on and off in his home at odd hours, and keeping company with young males. One neighbor would later recollect that for several years, she and her son had repeatedly been awoken by repeated sounds of muffled screaming, shouting, and crying in the early morning hours, which she and her son had identified as emanating from the house adjacent to theirs on Somerdale Avenue.
the next episode, we will go over the rest of Gacy's murders, how the employees of PDM started to go missing, and the lack of interest by the police, as well as the investigation that finally caught him. So as always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerspodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also visit my website at www.hofradio.org backslash truecrimetrucker. Also, if you'd like to donate to the show, go to www.patreon.com backslash truecrimetruckerspodcast. And if you like the show, then please give it a review on whatever platform you listen to it on. I will return in two weeks with episode two of John Wayne Gacy. So until then, stay safe.